This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. This is episode 127, and today I sat down with Richard Lee, the co-founder and CEO of July. July is a popular Australian D2C luggage brand that is reimagining the travel experience for a new generation. Richard talks with me about being born in China, what it was like growing up on a cargo ship for five to six years of his childhood, how he started a furniture business called Brosov, which now employs over 100 people, and why he decided to leave to start July. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, tell your friends, and check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Hey, Richard, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Very well, very well. Thanks for having me, Lee. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here. And you're calling from Australia. Yes, exactly. Melbourne, Australia. And this is where uh, my team, my company is based as well. You might be the first Aussie on the show. I don't know if I've had a founder CEO call in from Australia yet. Uh, oh, that's, <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you're breaking yeah. the mold. We're going global, people. No, I'm just kidding. We've already yeah. had like UK. I think we've had a few people from outside the US, but um, welcome. Well, Australia, first one. Yeah. 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 Thank Aust- you very much. Aussie, yeah. Australia. How are you? Mm. It's so great to meet you. Um, I know we have some mutual friends. You've been talking to my husband, Ben. It's good to finally see you. And I'm excited to hear your story. Real quick, before we dive in, let's just give them a little background. How would you describe July? What is July? July is a, I think, next generation, a digital native um, travel brand. We started off with um, one perfect carry-on and luggage. And now we've got a full range of um, you know, travel accessories and goods that aim to elevate people's travel experience you know, when they travel. And uh, there are so many, you know, products in the pipeline that we're going to continue, you know, developing to, to help people travel better. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, what we do at July. You know, I normally try to save some kind of like product conversation for like the middle or towards the end of yeah. the show, but I have yeah. it sitting here. And so I kind of want to dive in because it's not your yeah. average suitcase, people. This is not your average suitcase. And it is beautifully designed. I actually have dark green, which I'm kind of in this like dark green moment. I think this is like yeah. my color right now. I love it. I have like a phone case that's that color. This suitcase is that color. I can't believe there's so just some of the things that I have found interesting that are very different that I haven't really seen. 20 different levels for the suitcase handle. Like you can choose where, I mean, it's not like one and done, like every other suitcase handle. It's got adjustments. You really can kind of like place it anywhere. So it's so hard to describe, but it's so seamless. Yeah. I mean that we call it multi-stop handle. So it can stop anywhere because, you know, this type of handle used to be only on some luxury, uh, some of the luxury luggage brands. Uh, so we thought, why don't we bring this, you know, to our products? So because we're going direct to consumer, we can't afford to use, you know, highest quality components um, still selling at affordable price. Um, that was the starting point. And, uh, and also come from personal experience, you know, when I'm at the airport, and if I'm bored, I want to play with my suitcase. It annoys me if I only have two stops or two levels. I want to have multi-levels. It doesn't matter what, who's using the case, uh, what shoes you know you wear. You can always find the most comfortable high. I, I mean, that's just one of the you know many great features of uh, of the Carry On Pro that you have. Well, the one that I really love. I mean, I could obviously go on because it was like kind of surprise after surprise. Like, oh my gosh, it has this and that and this and this. It's like, what doesn't this have? 
but it's you guys what i love is this sleeve and i know you have a special word is it like snap on sleeve or something fun what do you call yeah, it yeah it's called snap sleeve snap, snap sleeve. sleeve and it's a laptop yeah. sleeve that literally snaps onto the front of your suitcase which is incredible. And there's actually, I noticed that there's actually, you could put like a lock at the top because the zippers, when they come up to the top of it, have a hole. And so you could put a little lock there so your laptop doesn't get stolen while it's strapped on here. But yeah, I mean, incredible, right? Because everybody carries their laptop when they're traveling. And unless you have a massive purse that you want to carry on your shoulder, which is, so you're going to place the purse on the like carry-on luggage anyways, as you're wheeling it through the airport you know, because it's heavy, you don't want to be carrying it around. This makes it so easy to just snap it on the front of your luggage. I mean, that's such a genius idea. And also when you arrive in your destination hotel, um, you, you, you need to go to a meeting. You can just grab this sleeve and with a laptop in it and just go to your meeting rather than carrying a different bag or carrying your entire suitcase uh, to the meeting. It's just more relaxed and uh, more casual. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's just a much better experience when you are on a business trip. The details are pretty incredible because when you hear like, oh, snap sleeve and laptop sleeve that goes on top of this luggage or just in the front of it, you're like, oh, it must just be one long sleeve. No, when you open it, there's like fit, like so many different containers, like zippers and places to put things. You're like, wow, this is a lot more than just putting a laptop in here. <laughs> put a lot of things yeah, in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think my product design team put a lot of effort, a lot of work in it. And uh, this is, I think, one of the world's first snap-on uh, pocket on the front of the suitcase. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, some real like, innovation here. I believe um, we, we got awarded some, some you know, good design award or somewhere. And you don't even know that award? Well. <laughs> yeah, like, we got like, so award. many. Like, we, got, we got so many, you know, like German, Japan, you know, China, Australia. There's so many of them. I just can't keep a track of it. Oh, my gosh. Um, Award-winning suitcases uh, left and right. Yeah. Yeah, for wow. sure. Okay. So award-winning suitcase brand is what we'll call yeah, it. My theory about product is that, you know, if we are going to design a product, uh, I, I've been in the product game for a long, long time, like maybe over, over a decade and same for my, you know, same for, for my business partner. And uh, whenever we come up with a product, Ethan and myself, we need to, you know, be willing to pay for it and we need to be willing to use it first um, before we hit the market. And uh, so all the products I'll, I'll, I'll say that we release at July are products that we personally like, we want to use before we even, you know, put to the market. Yeah. So you're kind yeah. of your own beta testers. For sure. For sure. Um, I think, uh, you know, us and also um, the rest of the company and also our family, we always bring a sample, a prototype, you know, back home. Uh, ask, you know, I always ask my wife and my friends and uh, if they like it and what are the things that they want to improve on. Yeah, we, 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 we use um, everyone around us to do beta testing. Do you have like a, the harshest critic? Like if anybody in the group wins the award for like harshest critic, who would it be? You're like, if it gets past uh, that guy or girl, like then it's a real winner. I'll say my business partner. My business partner. He's it's not yeah. you, it's your business partner. <laughs> uh he probably says me, but I would say it's him. So he he always has I, I remember I remember just last week we were designing this bag. You know, we had this, you know, very intense conversation around uh the laptop bag. Uh, I wanted to fit a 13-inch laptop bag, but he insisted he want a 13-inch laptop plus a sleeve because he believed everyone uses sleeve while they travel. So we had this intense conversation around if we increase the pocket or not. Uh, we probably spent like half an hour. In the end, he won. So we said, "All right, cool. Let's let's just do it. It's okay." Do you just like um, surrender? You're like, "All right, yeah. I'm not. I can't do this anymore. You win." Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of cre creative tension between uh, me and him, which I love, and uh, this is what partnership is about. Well, as long as you're enjoying the battles, you know, like you can come out like that was fun. Okay, fine, you won. I'll win the next one. Sometimes tension is a, a tough thing to navigate. Yeah, I know. But like building business with a friend and uh, like someone you can trust, it's just so much more fun. I mean, I admire people who build business by themselves, but building business with a friend, it's just so much more fun.
Yeah, I don't know if there's much to admire about the solar. I'm just kidding. I was a solar founder myself, so I'm thinking, what the hell would you admire? It's not that fun. Yeah, solar. I know it's so hard. It's just so hard, so hard to do, you know. But like when you do stuff, you know, when you build a business with a co-founder, you can sort of like push each other. You know, it's it's you know you can you can work on problems together and solve it. Yeah, it's just a lot of fun. As a solo founder, I think you just have to work a lot harder at making sure you're not in an echo chamber and that you surround yourself with enough people that it kind of feels like co-founders, even though they'll never be, <laughs> but you have kind of like different people for different things that you need to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you, you just want, sometimes you just want another voice telling you that's the right decision or not so good a decision, you know? And uh, yeah. And that's, you know, you know, that's about me. You know, you know, there's a, there's a, this interesting story of um, YC uh, in, uh, in the U.S. They never found business with the solo founders. They always need you to find a co-founder. I think there's a, you know, there's definitely a reason behind it. Yep. Yep. It's a struggle. So let's take your, I would love to hear more about you and your story. Where are you from originally? And what was it like growing up? What kind of kid were you? Yeah, I have a very interesting, you know, childhood um, I was born and raised in China for the first 16 years of my life. Um, but in fact, the first five or six, I was born and raised on a cargo ship. So I, I grew up with, I, I grew up, basically my, my, my parents were running this business, transporting, you know, coal uh, from one city to another along the Yangtze River. And uh, that's where I was born. And, uh, you know, yeah, and, uh, and I never went on land. I mean, I did like occasionally one, once or twice, you know, maybe a month. But most of the time I was actually living on a boat for the first six years of my life. Like 99% of your time you were on this 99%, boat. Yeah, 99.9% of the time I was on the boat Whoa. with my brother and sister. What about yeah. seasickness? Does that just mean you never get seasick because your body's just like naturally used to being on a yeah, boat? Yeah, exactly. I never, <laughs> I never got that. And it was, it was very interesting time. If you, if you know the story, if you know the, you know, the history of that particular time of China, China was actually experiencing a massive change in the society and economy. I think in the 1970s, Deng Xiaoping would just open up China. And before that time, doing business in China was illegal. Doing business in China was illegal. And they just opened up the economy, I think, late 1970s. And that was a time my dad and my mom were, you know, starting a business and I was just with them, you know, on, on a cargo ship. The, yeah. And on top of that, I don't know if you know, there's a one child policy in China. And uh, I think I believe that was a way. Yeah, I was part of that. There are five kids in my family. And uh, I think maybe that's that was also the reason why my parents trying to like hide us and on the boat. So nobody, nobody would know. Oh, so you did have siblings. You weren't a one child. You had a lot of siblings, five. It sounds yeah. like there's five of you. And yeah, five of us. wow. And they, yeah. you, it's probably because they were, you're saying able to hide you guys on the boat. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I re, I just remember I never had any, uh, at first I didn't have any birth certificate and I didn't have any like legal paperwork about my, my identity until the age of, um, 13 or 14. Oh my gosh, uh, that's to, so crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's just crazy time, very chaotic, you know, at that time. And I just remember as I was growing up, my, my, my parents had to, had to dress me almost like a girl growing up because, you know, because one child policy, uh, many families, um, they want a boy and they want a boy. And if they can't get a boy, some people would just steal. They just like steal, like, kidnap a boy and they raise them, they raise the kid, you know? So all my childhood photos, uh, they all like look like a girl because my parents just worry that somebody might, you know, kidnap me and uh, just, just raise me as their Does son. that mean, oh, so what about your siblings? Are they all girls? Is that, or did you have other brothers that were also? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I have two older sisters, one younger sister and the, the, the you know, the little one is a brother. I don't think, I think by that time uh, he was born in the 1990s. So it got better. Um, the situation got better and, uh, you know, you know, people were, you know, people are not like taking other people's kids anymore. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Thank God that's yeah. over. <laughs> yeah, Gosh. yeah. 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 It's just like this sort of story just never, you just can never, you know, you just never hear in the Western countries or developed no. countries. You're definitely um, the first that, one on the show who's grew up on a boat, you know, I haven't gotten that before. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. Not, not many people. Unusual. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it is quite unusual. I just remember uh, when I first, you know, got into school. You know, after after living like first six years of my life, I just found it very hard to understand. You know, the words and the, the you know the sentences other people are talking about. Are we talking in a particular way? Always within our family, and I had to adapt very quickly in that environment. But as a kid, you know, obviously it's very easy for you to adapt. But you know, I I, I just remember quite vividly that there was those challenges. Uh, you know, when I when I first got into schools, uh, you know, in China. Right. Because here you're going into like, you know, elementary school and you're on land. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on land. And uh, the, the sort of words that they use are very different from the words I'm, I used to. So there was because I always talk in dialect with my parents. So, you know, they, they always talk about using the, you know, talk about the dialect, you know, the, um, you know, speaking the dialect that they always or they always do. So I had to learn. It's like the same, you know, when you when you speak Chinese or the, you know, your entire life and coming to um, Australia and uh, trying to learn, you know, English is pretty much similar. Wow. Yeah. That's got to be tough. And so when you were a kid, kind of looking back, what did you want to be when you grew up? Or were there any signs of entrepreneurship that you kind of look back and you're like, that was actually really entrepreneurial of me? Well, I never thought I would become an entrepreneur. But when I was in uh, elementary though, there was one thing that I remember because one day, because I, I, I wanted to make some pocket money and my parents never gave me any, any money. What I did was that I went to the wholesalers and I bought some pens I, for like, I can't remember, maybe 50 cents or something. Then I basically sold it to my classmates for like $2 each. I did something like small things like that. And I also did some others just to make some pocket money, you know, because just because I wanted to buy food, I wanted to buy toys myself. And, uh, but I never thought I would become an entrepreneur. Even when I came to Australia, all I wanted to do was to do well in school, uh, do well in uni, after university, to find a good job. And, uh, you know, that's, that's been my whole life. And, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And your parents were entrepreneurs, right? Like they were running mm. this business. And so you kind of got to see, I guess, a little bit of what entrepreneurship looked like. Would you say that that was the introduction you had to what entrepreneurship looked like? Or was there another time where you met a founder or entrepreneur and you're like, oh, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to be like that. Yeah, I don't think I got influenced so much from my parents, but there's certain quality I got from my, from my dad, for example, you know, how to negotiate with suppliers, how to, how to manage a business deal. I definitely got some of that, but I think after university, I, when I, when I started my first business, you know, I, I think the, the, the main thing was just, I learned from, you know, people around me that being quite successful in business. And I thought maybe I could do that too. I, I didn't know that I could do it, but seeing other people become successful, I thought maybe I should give it a try because, you know, you only try, you know, you only live once and you're young and you should try something. And that's the things that I keep telling myself. Even today. <laughs> yeah, even, even, even today, you know, you never stop yeah. uh, learning and uh, every stage uh, you have new goals that you want to hit. And, uh, but entrepreneur, I think you can, I think to become an entrepreneur, you can do that anytime, anytime, not for everyone, but I never, I never really thought about becoming an entrepreneur until like after university when I started my, my own first business. So you went to University of Melbourne, got your Bachelor of Commerce there. And then what was your first, did you have any internships or you said you started your first company after college? Yeah, I, I tried to find a job. So I finished my CV and I started applying different jobs and never got any response. And I needed to live. I needed to eat. I was like, ah, oh, what should I do? What can I do, you know, to, to make some money, you know? So basically I started my first business selling products on eBay. Because I saw that I could buy products directly from China, ship them over and resell them on eBay platform uh, or other, you know, like Gumtree, you know, those platforms. And uh, I, I, I thought that was an opportunity. At the beginning, it was very small. So while I was running this business, I was also working in Blockbuster, which is a video rental, video sales store. Oh, yes. As a, just, as a, just as a cat. Yeah. Just, you know, that was pre-Netflix days. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. That was big that, you know, of, um, at that time. So yeah, I was basically selling products on eBay that while working in a blockbuster store. And then my business on eBay just started booming. You know, I was selling a lot more products. 
I quit the job in Blockbuster and then just kept focusing on my eBay business. And that, I, 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 I didn't think that was a, that was a real business. It, I was just a, you know, a regular seller on eBay until uh, one day I learned this business starting out from Boston called um, a Groupon, Groupon.com. And that really interests me because, you know, Groupon initially was a platform selling, you know, massage vouchers, uh, restaurant vouchers. And then later they introduced um, a section called goods. They start selling products on Groupon. And that was, I think, the hottest website for buying, you know, discounted products. So I got, you know, I got in contact with uh, Groupon Australia and uh, said, okay, I can actually, uh, you know, supply you products. They were interested. And at that time, they were new uh, to the market as well. They were like, all right, cool. What can you do for us? Uh, that, I think that was, that was a real, you know, starting of my entrepreneurial journey, I felt, because I was really like supplying a lot of products to Groupon. I was growing a million dollar, you know, million dollar business uh, very, very, at a very rapid rate. And then I extended my business to other countries, to North America, to Southeast Asia, to, you know, to New Zealand, to Europe, basically the same products, but supplying to Groupon in different regions. Then I extended to other group buying websites and we were doing really, really well at the time. Nice. And so what happened from there? You have like this great business and then what? Yeah, I got this great business, but then at the same time, I thought there was a flaw in this business model because it's purely transactional and I was relying on other people's platforms. That was time in 20, I think in 2012 or 2013, I thought, I needed to build a platform or brand myself and, and I need to do everything. You know, I need to build a, a relationship with the end consumer, not as a product supplier. That was a time that we were basically, I was brainstorming, you know, with a couple of friends, what we should do next. You know, should we build a, you know, design a marketplace or should we do a D2C, a D2C brand? And we thought furniture could be a very good one because furniture was the biggest category uh, when I was selling to Groupon globally. So yeah, then we started um, a DTC furniture business in 20, 2013 called Brossa, Brossa.com. And so what kind of furniture were you selling? So all kinds, actually. So basically the goal is to solve a real problem because buying furniture is a very, at that time, it was a very painful process. You know, I had to go to um, showroom. You have to go to like furniture showroom from one to another and you have to pick the right, you know, you have to pick the furniture, you have to negotiate price with the, the salespeople. Then you have to wait on average 16, like 18 weeks uh, to receive the furniture pieces because nobody has stock. So we thought that could be changed. You know, the, the, you know, the, the furniture buying experience can be, you know, can be improved by, you know, offering, you know, products on the D2C model and also having stock in our warehouse. So we identified this problem and then we, then we thought, okay, what sort of product we can supply? We look at all the different styles that people are looking for. And we just like adding products under each of the styles. There's a Scandinavian, there's a Manhattan, there's an industrial, there's a basically all kinds of furniture. And we list on the website. And at that time we didn't have any products when we first launched. And I think within the first week we got a couple orders. We're like, shit, we're in business. <laughs> So that's how you that's how you kind of validated the concept, right? To see if there's any right. bites. You know, this is the good. This is the way it's supposed to go, right? But a lot of founders are like, let me just buy all the inventory, let me get all the products in the warehouse, let me set everything up, and then test it, right? And then they realize most of the times when that happens that actually customers don't want those things, or you know, you just miss out on a lot of things that you can learn from doing tests. Correct, correct. We didn't have any products. All we did was some imageries. We upload the product and start selling. Then we 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 then we saw there's there there was an appetite for buying furniture online, and uh, that's where we got really really serious. Um, I flew to China and I went to factory to factory and to to set up you know basically business deals with these guys. And then also early days, uh, one of the things are very very I think we did really really well early days was to explain very well what we tried to build with all the factories. And then most of the factories showed great support and we didn't need to pay deposit or we didn't even need to pay for the goods. We, we, we sell the product first and then we, we pay the supplies back. That helped a lot because that allowed us to you know, bootstrap the entire business without any external funding. I remember that 
uh, the only money we put in was only $500. That was it. The $500 we got like, we've got like freelancer helpers with the website a little bit and uh, with the imagery is a little bit. And, uh, you know, we were just in business. And the first year we were on track to hit $5 million. What? That's crazy. Off of five, I mean, $500, you're saying? I mean, due to inflation, that's like pennies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, I, 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 people always say, oh, I can't stop business because I haven't raised a million dollars. I haven't raised $5 million. But to me, that's just excuse because most startups, they fail not because they, they don't have money, because they have too much money. When they have too much money, they they lose the discipline, um, you know, with the money and uh, they don't know how to spend money anymore. They overspend on certain things. And that actually, uh, it's more harmful than, you know, not having money and trying to figure things out yourself. I think that's, has always been my experience, you know, even after raising capital, a lot of capital, uh, we were always still very disciplined around money. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. And so how did the idea for July come around? So it sounds like you had this, you know, furniture business that was doing really well. What happened with that? Yeah. So business is still doing very, very well. Um, I'm still involved on the board level on the furniture business. Um, I think around 2018, that was the time I thought, look, this business is well-established. I've got a great co-founder team. I've got a great team, you know, working on this. And my heart was telling me that, I needed to build another something else, you know, in a completely different category. I didn't know what that ca- category might be. So I caught up with some friends, you know, over the following like several weeks. And one day I was, I was chatting with my, one of my now co-founder, Ethan, uh, in a cafe. We're just chatting about different challenges, you know, with um, different categories, uh, if there's anything that we could do together. And uh, during our conversation, we, you know, we landed on luggage because it seems luggage is a, uh, it is a category never being you know disrupted by DTC players in the in the in the Asia Pacific uh, region, and also the entire category is dominated by mostly one player, uh, which is Samsonite. They own a whole lot of brands. They um, they sell the products through distribution channels, and uh, there hasn't been any real innovation. So we just decided, you know what, this is a really good category to you know to be in, and also it's in the travel travel category. Uh, which we love, you know, that's how we started the business. It was very simple. You know, we identified an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, so in the U.S., I think most people would think of the D2C leader of luggage to be away. How do you guys compare with away luggage? Obviously, these guys have done an amazing job, you know, in building up a brand, building up a range. And uh, I think they've done a really, really good job. For us, we think we are a little bit different. You know, we have a very, you know, we have different color line. We have different designs. We have different ranges. Ultimately, we believe this is really, really good for the market. And, uh, you know, the, the end consumers will benefit from the different choices. You know, both brands are great. You know, we have really, really good offering. They have really good design. I think, you know, the, the, the American consumers are the, are the ones that also benefit from the competition. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you said that your heart wasn't really in the furniture business anymore and you kind of like, how did you approach that? That's a really tough feeling. And I think there's probably founders out there that might feel the same way, right? They've been working on a company for a really long time. They're like, my heart's just not in this anymore, but I feel like I've got this ball and chain that I can't get off, get out, you know, get it off me. So, you know, what advice do you have or how did you approach this whole thing to kind of say, Hey guys, I need to move on. And you're like, what was that like? 
I think it's uh, very, very important to be completely transparent with your, uh, with your investors or with your uh, co-founders. And that's the approach I took. You know, I just had conversations with my uh, co-founders there and I said, look, uh, I think you guys are more than capable of running, you know, um, running the show and uh, um, I'll continue giving my, give, give you guys my support. Um, but I'm, I, I probably will start something else and they show great support uh, on that too. You know, I think it's important who you're working with and uh, what sort of co-founder you have, what sort of investor you have, but very, very important just to be transparent and upfront and uh, work your way through. Not like, I think it's important to speak out uh, at the same time. You know, if you already have a thought, you know, not, I think not speaking out will actually make the situation worse sometimes because your heart is not there. You want to work on something else and you just at a state that you're not happy. I think for me, very important is I want to be happy, you know, whatever I do, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's not about money. Money is a, I think is a benchmark. It's one of the benchmarks, you know, to measuring success. But I think being happy is the most important thing for me. If I'm not happy doing anything, I'll just switch to something else that I feel happy about. Yeah. I mean, and it definitely affects productivity and how you work. You know, if you're not happy doing what you're doing every day, it can be tough to want to wake up in the morning and get to work, you know? Yeah. 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 I I guess it's the same for you, right? You know, um, running the podcast, you have to be passionate about, you have to be, you know, you have to be happy about doing this. If you're not, then, you know, you just, you know, when you wake up, you say, oh, shit, I have to do this again. You know, you, you, just, you just won't produce quality work. You're so right. If I didn't genuinely care about people's stories of how they got to where they are and hearing all about their childhood and their, you know, how they got to, you know, it's a lot to, to hear of some people's stories over and over. And I just love it. I'm like fascinated by everybody's different journey. And you're right. If I didn't have any type of interest in that, or if that wasn't something that got me excited, this would be miserable. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So that's why you have to be passionate about something that you do. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And life is too short to spend time doing something that's not something you enjoy, especially with work being the majority of your time. Yeah. You gotta like Yeah. It. Sometimes you spend more time with your uh, co-founders or colleague more in your family. Um, that's definitely the case for me. You know, I'm spending more time here in the office than spending time with my wife. I mean, just the math alone, Monday through Friday, nine to five, like 40 hours a week out of how many hours on a weekend. And, you know, it's, there's no comparison. Like you're, everybody is spending more time working than with their families. Yeah, 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 exactly. The, which is really sad. <laughs> right. And like, yeah. it's actually kind of sad too. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> but I love the four day work week that's happening. Like there's some trends happening that I think are really cool and we can stop getting out of this like old fashioned factory machine thinking about the workplace. Cause it's just not fitting modern. Yeah. Work culture. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. I, I think as long as, you know, the productivity is there as long as, you know, you know, people can get the work done. I mean, there's no reason four days a week or three days a week is not, you know, possible. You know, you just said three days a week. I haven't even heard that yet, but I'm yeah. going to hold you to that. I think you should do like a <laughs> test with your team. <laughs> You're like, yeah, oh. three days a week. Yeah. yeah. Three day work week. Do like a test to let us know how it went. I actually had um, the CEO of Malomo on the show and he did a four day work week test for a few weeks and the results were phenomenal and they are now permanently to a four day work week. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty because cool. The test. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Super interesting. Maybe we'll do that as well. You know, <laughs> you can one up and do three days. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. All right, people, we're going for we're going for like one day a week. That's what we're going to. <laughs> yeah. No, can't happen. Yeah. But the flexibility yeah. of working from home, and you know, that's already an improvement in itself. I think remote work is super interesting and helps bring a lot of balance to people's life. And that flexibility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, COVID definitely helped a lot in that sense. You know. Yeah. And uh, before, you know, before COVID, working from home was just a very, it's a very weird concept, but now it's so normal. It's so normal now. Yeah, exactly. So where did you get the idea for July? You're having this conversation with a friend. You're like, I think luggage should be disrupted. What were some of the first steps you guys took to test 
and to um, get this company launched? I think the first one that we did for this one, we first want to see if we can design a product that we are willing to buy. Because I think before before July, we both Ethan and myself, uh, we are like remote users and we just love luggages. Uh, We love, you know, high quality goods. You know, obviously now we're not allowed to use their products. But at that time we were, you know, we're definitely definitely remote users. And uh, we thought that there's a, even though it's a luxury brand, there's still a lot of things to improve on. So we we contacted a very talented product designer here in Melbourne, and uh, we sat down and uh, chat through some of the things we want to improve based on the current uh, luxury brands. And then you know just from there we designed a product we both of us very you know desirable for. We're like, yeah, let's make this happen. Let's see if it's possible to get a prototype or getting even getting it produced. I think the uh, that was the first step for us when we did uh, the. And when we did the first version of dry luggage, we went to went to a, a you know factory in China, and uh, we opened the tools, and uh, we 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 have the, we had the first prototype, and uh, all of us love you know even the family and friends they all love the design. Like, okay, maybe we're in business. That was what we basically what we did at the early days of July. It was very simple. Of course, we also pre-launched the product and. Uh, it was good to know that we could sell a full container load of products and, you know, within a few weeks before the container even landed. Uh, we knew that there was something there. That's amazing. So you did a pre-launch. Can you kind of explain to the listeners what that is? Because this is actually, I believe, what um, the founder and CEO of Parachute did way back before she even, you know, actually launched. She was like pre-selling her sheets. And so I think this like pre-sale idea is super important to start validating any type of concept. Can you tell us how, what your thought was behind it and how you guys executed? We were going to launch the business, I think, December 2018. And that was the time that we wanted to launch because uh, to, to get some uh, Christmas sales. But then we found out that the production got delayed. We actually couldn't have the product until Feb or March the following year. We're like, all right, uh, what should we do? Should we just launch the business anyway and to start getting some pre-sales? And that's what we did. What we did was that uh, similar, to, similar to Tesla's uh, founder edition, what we did was that we told um, customers that you guys will be the the first batch of customers and you're considered to be the founders of the business. And each one of them would get a founder luggage tag with a name on it. Also with Ethan and my signatures on the, on, on the letter, right? So as a, as a package, so they will receive a luggage tag with our signatures on it and uh, for free. And then once we have the container, uh, once we have the products arriving in Australia, we will ship them the product. It worked really, really well. And, uh, like I remember, like me and I, we were just sitting in that, that little room doing all the house stamping ourselves and putting people's name on it, like day, like day in, day out. So hundreds of those things, you know, uh, within a couple of days, it was, it was pretty crazy. So what made you guys think people want your signatures on their luggage? Like, I'm, and I'm saying that because I think that there's a, probably a lot of founders out there that are like, that's such a great idea. How do I get people to care? You know, like, or how do I get people to want that or buy into that? I, I'm not sure. I just think that people, there are certain, a lot, a lot of people want to be the first to test new things. There are people who want to experience new things. And when they do, they obviously want to know the people behind it. And, uh, you know, I, I do this all the time as well. You know, if there's a new release of something, you know, I want to get my hands on the first, I want to be the first to get those new products. And obviously I want to know the people behind it. If I know that I can get the founder signature, you know, I probably will try to get it as well. And uh, we obviously we didn't know, and we just try all kinds of stuff to to make sure that the pre-sale is a, is a successful one. And uh, yeah, it turned out to be so, which is pretty good. Maybe some other, you know, some of the founders listening to this podcast can do something similar. You know, when they release new products or new new businesses, it could be, you know, it could be cool. It definitely gives off the vibes of like. We're going to build this insanely massive brand and these first couple hundred are going to have our autograph on it. So if you want in, you know, I mean, it really kind of gives that vibe like, hmm, maybe I should. But you're right. This is a good reminder that there is a group out there called early adopters that love this kind of stuff. And actually, I think I'm one of them. I just never really hear about these things. (laughs) 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So how did you spread the word? I'm pretty sure the one you got, you know, on the um, one of the little tags still has our signature, but it's a printed version. So, yeah, if you open the, yeah. Not the same. <laughs> Not the same. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's what we did early days and it turned out to be really good. And so did, what kind of marketing did you do early days to kind of sell those couple hundred? It's mostly family, friends to begin with. So we, we, I mean, I'm not even kidding. We go through every single person on our Facebook friend list and tell them, hey, I'm launching this. It'd be great if you can support. I'm launching, you know, this is the product, uh, you know, please support us. So that's the first step. And I, I recommend all the founders to do this. And sometimes they were like, oh, I'm, I'm, I, don't want my, I don't want my family and friends know about this or I don't want them to do this. I, I, I disagree and I think it's important to let your family and friends know it's important to let them support. I think they, they will give you feedback and they will just, you know, they will help you, you know, the first uh, part of the journey because they will spread the words to up their family and their friends. And then, you know, a container uh, of goods, you know, will be sold just like that. Simple as that. So that's the first thing that we did. And of course, you know, PR was another. So we contacted, uh, you know, some, uh, some press and uh, we let them know this is what we're doing. And uh, this is the unique point of our product, of our business. And uh, some of the presses, you know, talk about it. That helped a lot as well. You know, it was very simple. We didn't have a lot of money to do pay marketing like Google or, or Facebook um, at the beginning. We wanted to sell them, you know, as organic as possible. And so what are some, would you say, like hard lessons that you've learned along the way? You know, this isn't your first rodeo. So you've got lots of, lots of lessons that you've learned in entrepreneurship and building a business, what are some of those really hard lessons? I think every day you have new, you know, every day you are, you're learning new things. Every day you have lessons, right? I think the But what was the one that like really punched in the gut and maybe is in a file of like, try not to remember, don't take me back there in that, you know, in your brain. But what is something that like really hurt? And that was, it was hard to get over or get through. Yeah, I think I think especially for founders, I think the, the thing I I think I made a, maybe a mistake early early days was that when you're developing products, uh, you want to make sure you have two or three you know suppliers or manufacturers working on the same project. You can't rely on just one. And there was I remember there was a certain product I was gonna launch a certain date, and I put all my best in one factory, and in the end the product wasn't you know to the quality that I wanted. It delays everything. So now, every time when I try to develop product, I need to make sure that there is multiple factories, you know, trying to get these projects. And so they can compete with each other and I can always get the best price. And that's definitely one of the lessons I learned, you know, on this journey. You can never rely on one supplier on a completely new project. And uh, I think the other thing is, I think the other thing very, very important is along the journey is that you have to make sure that you're working with the right you know, investors to make sure that investors share the same vision as you on this. You, know, you don't want to have investors that have a different agenda. And uh, we sort of have a you know, similar issue along the way. And we basically you know, just like, you know, try everything to, you know, to not try everything, but you know, we basically you know, make sure that everyone on, in this business share the same vision uh, as us. That's, you know, what, you know, you have to do, you know. So it sounds like you had a, a bad experience at some point with an investor who wasn't aligned. Can you kind of go through what that felt like or what that was like and how other founders might be able to look out for that? Yeah, definitely. I think the, the early days of your, you know, you, you just want to get like investment into the business and you just want to make sure that you have enough capital to grow the business. But then not everyone is the same as you as a founder. You want, uh, you know, uh, you want just want to keep growing the business. But sometimes you realize that some investors are very financially driven, very financially driven. So they all they care is the bond line. All they care is about uh, the you know contribution margin. You know the percentage here, percentage of that. And uh, then you spend a lot of time to entertain to to make sure everyone's happy. And uh, then the flip side of that is that you're wasting a lot of time you know, in, uh, uh, in all those, in all those things to make sure that investors happy, you're not focusing on the business. 
that's the thing we try to avoid at July. And very, I think very fortunately, I think all most of our investors uh, share the same vision as us in this business, which make our life so much easier. So I think very important is for founders that when, when you raise capital, you need to make sure it's the right investors on your board that share the vision and not just uh, the financials. Because financials can only be, the financial is only like right now, it does not reflect the future. Yeah. I know I'm thinking back to my own investors from my own company, Wearaway, and I was like, you know, I was able to get them in on that shared vision. But then once we pivoted, there wasn't a shared vision by a few people and one in particular, not so much. And it was a disaster. And so it's kind of funny, right? Because you you want them to like share in your vision, but you also want them to be, especially in the early, early phases, believing in you and knowing that if you need to pivot, they'll also support that. Yeah, I think I think that's that's super, super important. And you want investors who can who can uh, basically support you pivoting or building new things on top because you know you are in this business 24-7 and they're not, they probably spend a couple of hours a week or even a month. So you know more than them. So they need to support that. They need to understand that. And that's the investor that you want to get. You know, you don't want to get investors who want to tell you what to do, even though they're only spending a couple of weeks a week, a couple of hours a week. So I think, you know, you all, I think most business have, uh, most startups have, you know, one or two investors like that. And uh, I think you, try, you need to try to avoid those, those investors on your cap table. And it's hard. It's hard to gauge how people are going to be in three years, four years, five years into the business, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, where are you guys now and, and what can we see coming next for you? Oh, it's, we're at a very exciting stage at the moment. The, the business had, has been growing on a 50% month a month for the past, you know, 12 months. And our business is like, uh, 15, 20 times and they'll compare to pre-COVID level, uh, which is really exciting to see. We're hiring a whole bunch of people to help us grow. Uh, we are releasing a lot of exciting products and our, our NPD pipeline is so full of products, so, which is really stressful at the same time, so exciting to see. And uh, the other very important thing is, I think compared to some other DTC e-commerce businesses where you know being profitable is more of a, you know, aspiration uh, for us, you know, we, we, we've been profitable and we are a very sustainable business and uh, we don't need to, you know, raise a lot of capital, you know, to, to, to grow the business, uh, which is really, really um, a good position to be in. Yeah. Are you guys officially launched in the U.S. yet? You have, we, are, right? we are. Yeah. We launched, when did you um, launch? we launched um, July last year. We do, oh, nice. we do so everything one, in July. So every, yeah, every July we have something. So, so the what previous the name, July, is that where the name came July. from? You got to tell us where July came from. Was it July when you had this coffee meeting with your co-founder? Yeah, we, I, I, I had the meeting with him in, I think in June or May uh, that year, 2018. Um, but we definitely waited, you know, a couple of days or a, a couple of weeks until July, July the 7th to register business. But where they, where we, where we got the name was actually, July is the best month to travel, especially for Aussies. As you can see, in Australia, it's actually winter. It's super cold. Everyone, everyone want to go to Europe. Everyone wants to go to Southeast Asia. And uh, that's where the name comes from. It means travel. It means destination. It means, you know, it means that, um, you know, you're, you're either traveling somewhere or you just have to, you know, get jealous of seeing other people on your Instagram. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Do you have any other like final advice for aspiring entrepreneurs? I know we get a lot of founders that tune into the show because we have such an incredible roster of founders that are featured and interviewed. So I, I'm sure that the listeners out there are like working on something, thinking about leaving their job. Maybe they're afraid to take that leap into entrepreneurship. It's scary. You know, some it's, it's a tough journey, but what are some, you know, Things of advice that you would say for those that are in the trenches and also thinking about taking the jump. I'll say the three main advice I can give any, you know, founders or people who want to build their own business. The first one is uh, try to find a co-founder that can, you know, you can work with. Try to find a co-founder that you can complement each other with your skill set because building businesses is a, is a very tough journey. You want someone who can share the load with you. I think that's the first one. 
The second one is there's no perfect timing in launching a business. So you, you, a lot of people say, hey, um, I'm going to wait until I have this much saving in my bank or I'm going to do it once this. I'm going to do this once I have that. There's no perfect timing. The perfect time is now. If you think that you want to build something, you better do it now. And uh, yeah, just, just, just do it. Don't wait. Uh, don't give yourself too many excuses. And number three is, uh, I think, a more practical advice. Um, I, I think this is my personal experience building you know, multiple businesses, is that always make sure that you get great term from your suppliers. If you get great payment term from your suppliers, you actually do not need to raise a lot of external capital. And that's, this, is what we, this is what we're doing. You, if you can explain well to your suppliers the vision that you have, what sort of business you want to build and who you are, what your teams are. And a lot of, a lot of the time, they're actually going to support you. And uh, it, they definitely support, I mean, most of the supply definitely support me. And uh, because of that, we didn't need to raise a lot of capital, you know, from external investors, the, the, because the, all the suppliers are financing my working capital in a way. Yeah. So it's almost trying to find suppliers that are like long-term partners instead of a vendor type of relationship. Yeah. I, I think they are, you know, depends how you treat them. You know, if you, if you see them as a partner, you know, they will treat you as a partner. Uh, if you just treat them as a vendor, they'll just treat you as a, as a, one of the hundreds of clients. So it's all about building relationships. And uh, that's definitely one of the big, you know, advantages we have here. A lot of people, they raise you know, tens of millions just to fund the inventory. Where here, we don't need to because all the cash is used for growth, not for working capital. That's very helpful you know, when you're building a business. Uh, I think those are the three immediate advice I can give to any founders or you know, people who want to build an e-commerce um, product-related business. Great, great, great advice. Love the supply supplier one. That's um, key. And I haven't really gotten that one yet. So thank you so much for sharing your amazing um, story and really interesting and inspiring. And thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. And uh, it's been great chatting to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.